If you want to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9, tonight we're going to be studying chapter 9 and 10, uh, also a little bit from 1 Chronicles 19. <clears throat> but where did we leave off from last class? Last class we were in 2 Samuel chapter 8, and what we see at the end of that chapter in verses 13 and following, uh, David is making a name for himself, he's killed 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom. I may just need to turn it off. I can turn it off. Uh, he's made garrisons in Edom. And... Uh, all the Edomites became his servants. The Lord helped David wherever he went. Verse 14, David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was the recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahidab and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. And so at the end of chapter 8, things are very good. Things are going very well, right? I believe this is probably the first time that you see a leader in Israel who is actually leading over all of the territory that they were supposed to have, right? Since the time of Judges, when go into the land, take over, right? Kick out all the, the uh, tribes that are currently in the land. And they said, we will up to a point and then we'll stop, right? David's pushing them out. He's finishing what Saul started, and he's pushing him out of the land. And it says, David ruled over all Israel. Uh, he administered justice and righteousness for all his people. The Lord is with him. So things are going great for David. When things are going great for you, what do you do? I mean, there's a lot of things you could do, right? There's a lot of things you could do when things are going great. Um, what I don't think you typically do is think about a vow that you made so many years earlier and try and fulfill that vow, right? I don't think that's usually on the top of our, our to-do list uh, when things are going great, right? Maybe we want to take a break, right? Because we've done all this work. We want to take a break. Maybe we want to take a vacation. No, chapter 9 begins and says, David says, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? Maybe it's uh, providential that I was given this class as we are, I was the one who was teaching when we covered this vow that Jonathan made with David. So what vow are we talking about? Yeah, they would take care of each other's families, right? 1 Samuel 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20 is where that vow is made. David's trying to convince Jonathan that his father wants to kill him, right? He's trying to convince him of that. And when Jonathan finds out, you know, all right, we have to make this, we're making this covenant between ourselves. Our, you know, we are not going to be against each other, right? If, if you die, I'll take care of your family. If I die, you take care of my family, right? And so verses 14 through 17, one of the young men, uh, oh, excuse me, chapter 20, not 25, get over there. Uh, you shall not cut off your loving kindness uh, from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Right? They make this covenant. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. 
So then may the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Jonathan and David had a very special, a very important, a very significant relationship. And, and with that bond, that then with this covenant extended to their own kin, right? Extended to their families. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David wants to do this. He wants to fulfill this vow. I don't feel like that's a typical response from a person in the world, right? Okay, let's say that you are a person in the world and that you, you, you know, hey, I have somebody that, okay, I really care a lot about this person. We'll make a covenant. Okay, we make a covenant. It has to do with some other things, some other people that aren't currently here in this situation, right? I think most people's reaction would be, if they come to me, I'll help them. Right? If they come to me and they say, hey, I need help, then yeah, I'll help them. That's, you know, that's fine. Yeah, I'm fulfilling my covenant. They come to me and say, hey, you know, I'm in this bad situation. I really could use some assistance here. Then yes, I will provide that assistance. But how many people would actively and intentionally look for ways that they could fulfill this covenant? What vows do we have that we give today, right? Like, we're not entering into covenants typically with random people about, hey, if you die, I'll take care of your family and, you know, vice versa, right? We don't normally do that. But we do make vows and covenants with people today. What, what can you think of? Marriage is usually the first one, right? That's the first one that we think of, marriage, in marriage vows, do you vow to do specific things for your spouse and to your spouse? Yes, right? Do we have this attitude of David? Are we intentional and purposeful in the things that we have vowed, right? Or do we try and just, if we don't say anything about it, It'll all just go away, right? That's what a lot of the world does, right? If we, okay, just don't say anything. Don't look at them. And it'll all go away, right? No, if you make a vow, right, we know what the Lord, uh, how the Lord feels about you making a vow and your responsibilities toward that vow, right? Leland, Brother Leland went over that when we talked about Jephthah and his foolish vow, right? Why is Jephthah an example of making a foolish vow, it's because when you make a vow, you have to be careful, right? You are required for that vow, right? To fulfill that vow. So don't go making it willy-nilly, right? It's not a silly thing that you can, you know, oh, I, my wedding day, I'm going to vow that I will kill every spider for my wife. Well, be careful, right? How many spiders are in the world? I mean, I don't think you're going to make it, right? We have to be careful and intentional with our vows, and we have to be committed to them, right? This is an example of David's commitment to this vow. Why is David committed to this vow? He made it to Jonathan, uh, someone he loved, right? Someone whose soul was knit together with his own, right? Well, that is the motivation behind this covenant and why it means so much to him. So, 
Based on this, right, and David's willingness and commitment to Jonathan and to this covenant, David asks, is there anyone left, right? We already know that Saul's sons have been killed. Uh, Some have been killed by the enemy. Some have been killed by their own countrymen, uh, thinking they can get some kind of favor from David. Um, But who's left, right? Who's left from Saul's house? And so they send, uh, they find a servant of the house of Saul named Ziba. They call him to David, and he asks, you know, are you Ziba? He says, I am. And David says in verse 3, is there not anyone left whom I may show the kindness of God? And he says, yes, there's one son left. And what's that son's name? Mephibosheth. Okay, we're not going to say it in a tongue twister style over and over again. But Mephibosheth, right? Where did we first meet Mephibosheth? Well, we first meet him in 2 Samuel chapter 4, right? 2 Samuel chapter 4 is where we're first introduced to him. He's the wise old age of five in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, verse 4, Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So Jonathan's son Mephibosheth probably didn't know a lot about his father, right? If his father died at the age of five, you know, his involvement and interaction with his father and with David, I mean, with David, it was non-existent, right? David didn't even know he existed. Um, with Jonathan, you know, who knows how, how much interaction he had. But not very much, right? His father dies at the age of five. But he is a descendant of Saul. He's lame. And so... David asks, where is he? Uh, Ziba tells him he's in uh, Lodabar, in the house of Makir. And so David sends for him. And Mephibosheth comes. He arrives before David. And he falls on his face, uh, prostrates himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here's your servant. So what's David's first reaction with Mephibosheth? Don't be afraid. Why would he say that? He's the king, not just the king. I mean, you think of it from Mephibosheth's perspective. He's a son, descendant of Saul, right? And so he's a descendant of the previous king, descendant of the previous kingdom. Um, What would typically happen in that case if you were, I don't know, say, Roman Empire? Uh, yeah, you're dead, right? You're dead. Well, but I'm lame in both feet. Doesn't matter. You're dead, right? You might be a threat to the throne. Get him out of here. Um, but David, you know, let's get rid of that immediately, right? David is different. He doesn't care about that. He, what he cares about is a covenant that he has with Mephibosheth's father. And he's going to fulfill that. And so he tells Mephibosheth, do not fear, right? Do not fear. For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. How meaningful would that be to an individual who is a cripple? What is David saying when he says, I'm going to restore all this land, you can eat at my table? 
Yeah, you're part of the family, you have value. Not just that, I'm providing for you for the rest of your life, right? You won't have to worry about anything. I'm restoring all of your father's land, which, uh, you know, again, in typical, normal, physical kingdom fashion, that land would then be occupied by David, right? David would own that land if he took over the kingdom. But he's giving that, he's restoring it back to Mephibosheth. And he's saying, not only am I giving you this land, but you are welcome at my house for dinner all the time, right? You will stay with me and and eat with me, which means he's not going to be eating off of the produce of his land, right? He's being provided for by the king as well, right? You're fully taken care of in this instance. And so, you know, is he fulfilling that covenant with Jonathan? Yeah, right? Yeah. Fulfilling it as much as he can, right? To the best of his ability, he's going to take care of Jonathan's family as he he vowed. And so Mephibosheth, after he says this, in verse 8, he prostrates himself and says, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? I find it very interesting that this is his response because when I, when I hear this response, I immediately think of David. I mean, that's what I think of when I think of this response, right? What, what did David tell Saul? Yeah, he, he constantly repeats over and over again, what, you know, I'm not worthy to be your son-in-law. Why are you coming after me? I am a nobody. I am a flea. I'm very small, I am unimportant, insignificant, right? David repeats that over and over and over again. Mephibosheth is saying, I am a dead dog, right? If you are crippled in both of your feet during this time, what kind of value are you providing to your community? I mean, not a lot, right? Not a whole lot. Um, You're talking about a very agrarian society, right? You, You can't be a farmer, you can't be a warrior, not a whole lot of jobs left, right? Um, and so this comment of, you know, I am a dead dog is, you know, he's, he's saying I can't provide any value, right? What value can Mephibosheth provide? David's going to give him this land. How is he going to provide some kind of benefit to the kingdom with this land? I mean, he can't do it himself, right? And that's what he's trying to relay to David, but David has a, has a solution for that. The king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all to his house I, give, I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So Ziba says to the king, according to all that the Lord the king commands, his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. You know, David provides in every way that he can for this son of Jonathan. And, you know, as far as we know, there's not a whole lot of other relatives of Saul left, right? He finds this one. And so he gives this one everything. Right, everything he could. And not only that, he provides provision for that son who can't work that land, right? He gives him the, the manpower, the servants, the individuals to take care of it, 
and assigns them to serve him so that he can be provided for and his family can be provided for for generations to come. And so, again, this idea of covenants and vows that we make. When we make that vow to our spouse, how far are we willing to go to take it? Or, you know, how far do we go in that vow? Right? We vow very specific things, but we vow, you know, all of ourselves, right, to our spouse. <clears throat> but oftentimes, whether it's, you know, our relationship with our spouse, whether it's our relationship with God, we can become selfish, we can become short-sighted, and we can lose our intention to look for ways that we can fulfill that vow each and every day. And we become a little complacent, right? Especially when times are really, really good, right? You have everything you could need. You are king of the land. And yet, there's still things he can do, and so he does it, right? Still things he can do. I got to fulfill this vow. Let's go find him. Let's get the people. Let's get the stuff we need. Let's give it to him. Let's make it all happen, right? We have to be careful for that. We'll have another application from this later on at the end of our class uh, together this evening. So, any comments on Mephibosheth before we move on from here? Yes. Mm-hmm. During times of distress, I mean, you talked about the vows we make, um, the vows we make with, uh, like on marriage, they're not in times of distress, they're in times of, you know, peace, uh, but this, uh, he made that vow with Jonathan not knowing what the outcome would be, and to have that coupled with the idea that, like you alluded to earlier, like no one alive knows that David made this vow other than David, mm-hmm. uh, so it's easily something he could have gone through the time of distress and been like, whew got out of there, um, and just left it, uh, but instead tried to seek it out. I think it's a really good testament of uh, good testament of character. That's true. Again, it shows that heart of David that we see over and over and over again uh, throughout, you know, First and Second Samuel. Um, David has that heart that's not like Saul, right? It's not like the king that they had before that was very physical and focused on himself and on the things that he could have. Um, David, David doesn't live that way. Any other comments? Okay, so moving on to chapter 10. Mephibosheth, again in verse 13, lived in Jerusalem. He ate at the king's table regularly. They, again, we mentioned he's lame in both feet. But in chapter 10, verse 1, we see another, uh, another character from our previous study. We have the king of the Ammonites. The king of the Ammonites dies. Who is this king? Nahash. Who's Nahash? I mean, I recognize that name. Think all the way back to, I don't know, when Saul was first uh, anointed as king, right? He, the, one of the first things he does is he goes in and he saves the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Who does he save him from? Nahash, the Ammonite, right? He saves him from Nahash. And so my question is, 
Uh, in verse 2, David says, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. When did Nahash show kindness to David? I'll give you a hint. This is kind of a tricky question, and it's unfair. We don't know, right? I don't know. I mean, I looked through, tried to find it. I didn't see anything. I don't know when Nahash was kind to David. I know that here David says that Nahash was kind to him in some manner, right? If you look around and do some research, uh, you can find some things that say that maybe Nahash uh, allowed one of David's brothers to come and stay with him when the king of Moab killed the rest of David's family. But I don't see that in the scriptures, so I don't know if that's true or not. Um, You have some justification in that, well, Nahash probably hated Saul because Saul, you know, ran him out of town when he was trying to take over Jabesh Gilead. And then David becomes an enemy of Saul. So maybe there's some kindness there because they're trying to get David on their side as, you know, David's going around to the Philistines, to Moab, to all these different other nations trying to escape Saul. Maybe he offered some kind of protection or some kind of provisions or something. But, I mean, when you're looking in the scriptures, you don't see any of that, right? I don't know. But I think it does go to show that your interaction with a different person can be very different from someone else's, right? Someone can have one interaction with an individual and say, that person is evil, horrible, terrible, right? You can have an interaction with that person and have a very different experience, And so we have to be careful because things change, right? Um, Situations change. Interactions with people change. People can change. But David here has had some kindness showed to him by Nahash, and so he's trying to show kindness to his son. And so he sends a delegation to the Ammonites, and... The Ammonites, uh, Hanan is now their king. He's the son of Nahash. And David sends these servants to the land. And then uh, Hanan has some advice that's given to him. What's the advice given concerning David's servants? Yeah, watch out. Do you think David's doing this all just because he wants to try and console you? You know, is that, is that good advice? Well... Uh, you know, maybe you need to know your subject a little better, right? Maybe know the individual who's sending these men a little better, and maybe you could give some better advice. But from a worldly perspective, yeah, somebody just sending a gift out of the kindness of their heart when you're a new king, it may be wise to have a little caution there. It may be wise to, you know, just be careful. I don't know that I would say it's wise to do what Hanan did, right? So what does he do with David's servants? Yeah, he humiliates them. Shave off half their beard, uh, strip away a portion of their clothing, and send them back, right? Send them packing. Embarrasses them, right? What's the point of that? You're sending a message, right? If you're the king who's doing that, you're sending a message to the individual that sent those men to you. One, I don't believe you. Two, 
I don't care, right? I'm going to humiliate you and shame you in front of all these people, right? Was that done in secret, and then they sent him away at night to go back? Did they shave off half their beard but give them a mock beard that they could wear so that people didn't really know? No, right? That's a very public display of dishonoring someone's gift, right? And that's done intentionally because the advice that he gets is this is a this is a trap, right? This is a trap. Don't fall for David's trap. And so Hanan listens. The men run to Jericho, and what does David do? He meets them, right? He goes and meets them and talks to them. I think that's very different from what you would see in Saul, right? If somebody failed Saul, did Saul go and say, it's okay. You know what? Just stay here. Hide out until you know, everything gets back to normal. And then, then we'll go. I mean, that didn't seem to be the It doesn't really fit the character of Saul. Um, it doesn't really fit the character of a lot of very self-possessed, uh, narcissistic rulers of the time, right? If you fail me... You're done, right? Um, or I berate you in front of everyone. No, David comes and he, he meets with these men and he, he tells them, you know, stay here in Jericho until your beards grow back, right? You don't have the shame of this over you anymore and then return. What you don't see David doing is what I think you would see most men Uh, worldly men ruling a nation do, right? Uh, Does David get his army together and say, let's go take him? I mean, not right now, right? Who's the next one to act? Ammon, right? Ammon is the next one to act. Uh, I think it's interesting that Ammon is the next one to act because, uh, I mean, you just insulted David, right? And I don't think it's not known how good David is at fighting, right? It's probably not hidden away where, oh, we don't really know if David's good at fighting or not. I mean, they know, right? They know what David has done. And so, okay, we insult David, so what's our next logical step? Well, our next logical step is, well, if we insult most people, they're going to come back and fight us. So what do we need to do? Well, we need a lot more soldiers, right? We need to really beef up our army. And so Ammon gets a lot more soldiers, right? In verse 6, Ammon prepares for war. Um, They get 1,000 men from Maka, 12,000 men from Tob, 20,000 foot soldiers of the Arameans. In 1 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 7, it says they also get 32,000 chariots. Right? So they're getting prepared for a large battle. Right? They're expecting vengeance to come upon them. And so they're going to mass their troops first you know, so they're ready. Right? And so David responds in kind. Right? If they're going to amass an army, okay, David will respond. David wasn't sending his army to them, though, in the beginning. Right? Ammon is the one who reacts first. And I think what that says about David is... David learned his lesson before about vengeance, right? When was David confronted with vengeance before? I mean, Nabal is the one that I was thinking of, but, I mean, you think about it, there's also Saul. There's Saul the first time. There's Saul the second time. There's, you know, 
all these different examples and lessons that David's learned over vengeance, but specifically Nabal, because in Nabal, he goes and he's going to kill him. But Abigail stops him and and teaches him this lesson that he says, yeah, you're right. I should have known better, right? I should have known better. I shouldn't have done that. This time he doesn't need someone to come up and remind him, hey, you don't need to do that. He does, he, okay, they shame my men. My men will stay here. You know, they'll grow their beards back out and then we'll, you know, we'll move on. But no, now they're going to attack. Okay. Right, meekness is not weakness, right? If they're going to attack, then David will prepare, right? And he'll go into battle. And so in verse 7, Joab uh, is going to lead the army. Um, and uh, David hears of the, uh, them gathering the men. He sends Joab and all the army, the mighty men out. The sons of Ammon came. They draw up in battle array at the entrance of the city. Uh, they kind of divide their forces. And so when Joab sees that the forces are divided, he also divides their forces. He's going to be in charge of one uh, group. And then who's in charge of the next his brother, Abishai, right? Abishai is in charge of the other group. And they, they make this agreement that, okay, we, we're going to watch each other's backs, right? If one side is, is uh, gaining ground, then we'll help. We'll strengthen that side. If, you know, if your side's losing, we'll come and strengthen you, right? So we'll, we'll protect each other. And they go into this battle. And uh, it, again, Joab, when he's you know, giving them in courage in verse 12, he says, Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people, for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Right? Are they going to be taking the victory themselves? No. Right? The Lord is going to be giving it to them. And so in verse 13, Joab, the people who were with him, drew near, and the Arameans fled before them. When the sons of Am- Ammon see that, what do they do? Ah! Right? We hired all these men. It's supposed to be good. They ran. So, ah, I'm out of here. So, they run. And when they flee, uh, they go, you know, Joab returns to the city. But in verse 17, it's told David, David gathers all Israel together. He crosses the Jordan. And the Arameans decide, okay, well, now we got to make a stand. They try to make a stand. And David kills 700 charioteers. And 40,000 horsemen. He also strikes down their commander. And so when all these kings that own these other armies, right? When all of them find out that, see what happened, that they were defeated, they make peace with David and they don't do business with Ammon again, right? And we're not going to side with Ammon on these fights anymore. It says they feared to help the sons of Ammon, right? Um, you, have to, you have to make wise decisions in who you align yourself with, right? Who you decide to partner with in different things. And we see in the, in the scriptures that it talks about the idea of, of having a close relationship with someone and how it can affect you. And that doesn't matter what that relationship, what type of relationship that may be. Right? Brother, sister, father, mother, we see that. Father-in-law, sister-in-law, we see that. Husband and wife, we see that. Business partners, we see that. Friends, acquaintances, we see that. People you're just generally around on a, you know, 
a lot of, of time, right? Yeah, we, we see all those different relationships discussed, right? And we have to be careful with how we align ourselves and how much time we spend and how we guard our hearts against influences from the world in any of these situations, right? Bad advice led Hanan to having this giant defeat, right? That all started with bad advice that he was given. In Proverbs, we see that there's, there's wisdom in a lot of counsel, right? But Proverbs is a book of general wisdom, right? Yes, advice is good, but we have to be careful to make sure that that advice is, is actually wise, right? That it actually is founded in something. And so we have to be careful. We have to test these things. Um, but God gave them the victory. So... I want to finish the class kind of thinking about some of these things and what does it mean because we know what's going to happen next week, right? Next week we know what we're going to be studying. We're going to be studying chapters 11 and 12. And right now, in chapter 8, we see everything's really good. Chapter 10, everything's still really good, right? Yay, we helped out Mephibosheth. We had this great victory again. David is king over all Israel. He's ruling with righteousness and justice. It's not what the children of Israel have had before. This is a good time in the land and a good time to be the children of Israel, right? David fulfills a vow in in chapter 9. Next week, David's going to break a vow. So what does that mean? Does that mean David is hypocritical? Does that mean David, uh, is, he kept a vow. He always is going to keep vows, right? David is a vow keeper, right? He always keeps vows. Is that what that means? I mean, obviously not, because next class we're going to talk, he's going to break a vow. But, okay, when he breaks the vow, does that mean David just breaks vows? He's a liar? We can't trust him? Take heed lest you fall, right? When can you be tempted? Things are going really well. Yeah, you can be tempted when things are going really well. When else? Is that the only time? Things are going bad. You can be tempted anytime, right? When things are going great, when things are going bad, when you're really tired, when you're really angry, when you're overwhelmed, when you're depressed, when you're sad, when you're lonely. When you feel over, like there's too many things, right? You're over, uh, what is it? Overstimulated, right? You're overstimulated. Too many things. Um, when can temptation hit you? Anytime. All the time. So, when do we need to be on watch? When do we need to be on guard? All the time, right? David, at the end of chapter 8, was doing a lot of things well. He had the land. He had uh, rule and control over the land. He had run out the enemies of the Lord. In chapter 9, he finds Mephibosheth. He intentionally fulfills that covenant and does it to the best of his ability because of the love that he had for Jonathan. Those are all great things. 
And those things, again, doing, you know, the, the things that you're supposed to be doing, right, as, as it were, the things you're supposed to be doing, that's a great way to protect yourself from having that time for the temptation to set in, right? Having that, that moment for you to pause and allow that into your heart and allow that to take root or to take advantage of you in some way. If you don't have that time, if you stay busy doing the things you're supposed to be doing, that can help protect you, but it doesn't make you impervious to it, right? David learned his lesson in chapter 10. He didn't go out and try and get his own vengeance. That's a good thing, right? Sure, yeah, that's a great thing. So let's turn it back on ourselves. Are we intentional in fulfilling our vows? Are we intentional every day? Do we believe the things that we committed to? Right? David, part of that reason why he fulfilled that motive, you know, that covenant was because of the love that he had for Jonathan, right? When he made that vow, It was a vow based on that relationship. It was very close and that love that he had. Oftentimes people make haphazard vows, right? That's why marriages fail, right? That's why people fall away from the Lord. They they made the vow, but it's not really based in anything, right? It's, It's based in maybe something that's passing, something that's temporary, something that's fickle. Maybe it's based in a very... You know, fantasy worldview of like a perfect situation, but problems occur. It doesn't work out the way they planned or the way they expected. And so, you know, we become less intentional in fulfilling our vow, right? So, what do we do? We have to consider, right? We have to examine ourselves. We have to think about it. We have to be intentional, right? Sometimes we have to make a change. Sometimes we have to work harder. Sometimes we have to be less selfish. Sometimes we have to be more forgiving, be more patient, be more kind. All these different things. What am I basically saying? Well, what I'm basically saying is you have to live the way the Bible tells you to live every single day and work at it every single day because, yeah, that's the instruction that we're given, right? It's, it's really not something that I came up with on my own. It's not some new revelation. It's, you know, we see it every time we're here in class, right? But it's something we have to work out at all times. Also, we have to realize that we're not impervious, Right? Temptation can occur at any moment. So be careful when, you're, when things are going well. Be careful when things are going poorly. Be careful when you're at a heightened sense of emotion. Be careful when you're at a heightened lack of sleep. Right? Be careful at all times. Be watchful, not just for yourselves, but for those that you care about. Right? For those that are around you. For those that... You're part of a family with here at this place, right? We have to be watchful for each other as well, right? Yes, Brother Sam. Years ago, uh, a 
preacher doing a series on marriage and family talked about uh, people sometimes have the excuse for when they mess up saying, well, you know, it, the grass was greener over there. And uh, his response was, the grass is greener where you water it. And so really it, it falls on me to make my situation the way it needs to be so that I'm not thinking about something or someone else outside of my marriage since we're kind of talking about, you know, the marriage. Sure. And, and I thought, wow, hey, that's pretty smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. It, you know, and again, that, that comes back to what do you value, right? Where are you putting your value? Uh, you know, what is your vow based around, right? And, and, you know, when you value something, right, when you treasure something, then that's going to be where your heart is, right? That's what Jesus taught us. When you have something that you value, that's where you're going to put your focus and your attention. That's where you're going to put your effort. And so what do you value? A lot of people in the world value very temporary things. Um, but we're called to value things that are more permanent. Right, things that are uh, that are eternal. Yes, Alan. It's on that topic of value. When Jesus was on Earth, he bothered people when he would spend time with the meek and lowly and show attention to them. And when he would reference the Gentiles, at times people would try to kill him immediately. They couldn't hear that. These two chapters, chapter nine and ten. If if they had looked back at David, they would have seen that he was valuing those same things. You see him him valuing Mephibosheth here, not because of who he is or what he can provide, but because of whose he is. There's a pretty clear connection for us there. And then even in chapter 10, David is ready to show mercy and grace to Gentiles. And when they reject him, he's patient with them. And even when they fight him, He's ready to enter into peace with them when they want that as well. And so you see David here putting value on those types of people that, you know, they were not ready for Jesus to value those types of people. But David was a picture here showing us that that those people, the seemingly unvaluable or people in the world that we might not want to show attention to or show love or care for, David cared for those people. Jesus obviously did too. And it really highlights that those individuals must be valuable to us. Yeah, it's so interesting to see these two chapters, 9 and 10. And again, like you said, how he puts the value on both Mephibosheth, a cripple, and also uh, you know, people that are not part of the, the tribe of Israel. And yet, in the following chapters, he's going to not value anything that he normally would. And, uh, and I think what we, you know, what we often see when, when we view individuals, uh, you know, when we're going over and, and reviewing a lot of this history, we like to put people in the good box or the bad box, in the, like, obedient box or the disobedient box. And that's unfair, right? It's unfair. What we learn... What do we learn from more, I think, with David is how exactly like all of us he can be, right? That's what we also learn from Saul is I could be like Saul at times. Uh, I can be like David at times, right? I can do the right thing. I can do the wrong thing. 
I can do it for very similar reasons to both those individuals. And what we're supposed to learn is, you know, learn from that example, right? Don't, don't do the wrong things that Saul did, right? Watch out for his example. Don't do those things. So you don't have to go through those same consequences. Don't do the same things that David did. You won't have to go through those consequences. Um, John. I just thought I'd point out a parallel here. Um, with these men that David sent as messengers of peace and messengers of kindness, uh, you might see a parallel with um, God and sending the prophets and Jesus would tell parables of the men he would send to the landowners, the ones he expected to get a good response from, and they were treated shamefully, and they were treated uh, very badly and abused, and eventually, of course, he sent his son, and they rejected him. Um, a bit of a parallel there, um, but maybe the bigger parallel goes straight to us, because we will be, if we're doing our part in the kingdom will be God's messengers of peace and kindness toward the world. Now, the world will misunderstand that. The world will be cynical about that. Um, they will second-guess our purposes. They will treat us shamefully and badly. Um, and so maybe it's something to notice here that if we will we'll be setting ourselves up for these kind of things, just be prepared for it. Thank you very much for your attention. Next week, we'll be in chapter 11 and 12.